0: Okay. The microphones are live. I was thinking your math off. The math's totally off. I'll start there. Daniel corrected me, yeah. Um, I gave you what it would be if it was one-tenth, not a hundredth. It'd be closer to a buck, two bucks, not 10 to 20. So Daniel helpfully informed me. could have told me before, but he told me after <laughs> the message that... I, my math was off; that I had only decimated the number and not divided by a hundred. So now it's more like she gave a dollar or two. So yeah, that's even more remarkable. Um, okay, any other? Yes, here comes. Oh, I know what question is coming from you two, ladies. Linda? Okay.
1: Okay. So. Since Jesus was in the temple teaching, was it, I mean, obviously they hated him, and they didn't want to hear anything he had to say, but yet he was in there teaching every day. Uh So is it just open for them, I mean, for, you know, someone to, I mean, obviously they would have not wanted him teaching more because they didn't like anything he was saying. So if they were in charge of the temple, why was he allowed to be in there I mean, I understand
0: them. 2019. They wanted to lay hands on him at that very moment, but they feared the people. The people are hanging on his every word. So it's not just Jesus in the temple. It's Jesus surrounded by a rapt crowd of people hanging on his every word. They don't dare mess with that. They're afraid. I mean, other gospels tell us they actually sent soldiers to arrest him, and the soldiers were just like, no way. (laughs) They were afraid a riot would ensue and that the people would stone them to death. So Jesus is protected by the people because the people, right now at least, are holding him in high esteem and listening to his every word. So it's not as simple as just Jesus is there. It's Jesus is there surrounded by a rapt, attentive audience. And that is why they dare not lay hands on him. In fact, they say the same thing again a little later in chapter 22. Not just once, but twice we're told they fear the people. So in 22... um, let me get it here. Where is it? Feared people. I'll have to search on my phone. I can't f- I saw it earlier this morning. Fear and people. Hold on here. Five points to whoever finds it first. People. Okay, it is Luke Luke twenty-two two. So read twenty two, one and two. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death for they feared the people. He's only growing in the people's estimation. And so like if we, I mean, in, in John, if we keep on letting him go on this way, all of Jerusalem will go after him. He, he is only raised in their elevation as he silenced one by one every group to come and try to deal with him, and so they're just they're unable to act because he's publicly vindicated. Publicly, he silenced them, and so they would look like a bunch of angry um, people not having any right claim because. I that's one of the things he's going to throw at them when they arrest him at night at the Mount of Olives. I was in the temple every day. Why didn't you come and deal with me then? Because they're a bunch of scaredy, angry, corrupt people. And so they're afraid of what the people will do. That's why. That that work? That was not what I was expecting. But Elsa will not disappoint me. Okay. No? And you're not going to ask it? Okay. Okay. Greg,
2: well, I was just going to suggest that the, Jesus was probably becoming more ingratiated to the people because the people suffered under the Pharisees and the yeah. Sadducees and the mm-hmm. scribes, and and Jesus was putting them in their place. Uh-huh. Uh, so they probably enjoyed that and were thinking, you know, we're maybe something is going to change right. as a result of this, and our life is going to be better. I mean, if the if they if the scribes truly, um, what was it you said, uh, they prayed on the widows, et cetera, uh, then, then they were seeing this as, well, maybe that's going to stop.
0: Right. And as Jesus points out, there's, yeah, there probably is a certain amount of, yeah, yeah, as they're pointing this stuff out. They're laying them on heavy burdens. I mean, this whole system's worked because the scribes have said, hey, Like I said, the closest analogy I can make is Roman Catholicism. The the religious community claims to have the right interpretation. And so just as Rome told people, hey, you got to do this, you got to do this, as soon as someone comes along and challenges it and says, you're not interpreting it right, I don't think so, you see the peasants revolt, you see the peasants realizing you can you've been holding us hostage to, to, to communion and other things and demanding money to get people out of purgatory. And as soon as they realize that's bogus, there's this huge resentment. Hey, you know, so, so much so that, like, governments were overthrown as a result.
1: So what happened between this and Friday when they all shouted crucify him?
0: Well, that is a very good question. And Luke doesn't, and there's a lot of debate um, Luke doesn't exactly tell us. There's a lot of debate. Is is the same? I mean, because there would be millions in Jerusalem for the Passover, likely. But remember, every Jewish man has to come. Many of them would come with their families. And so, one possibility is that it's different groups. That the that the uh, the group yelling "crucify" is a largely dissimilar group. I mean, not absolutely dissimilar, but largely dissimilar from the group that's wrapped. The other possibility is simply, and we see this happen even nowadays, that while someone's winning, yay, and then as soon as they're losing, boo! you know, and people can be fickle. People can rejoice at somebody as they're winning and as they're doing well, and then as soon as he, the guy that you backed, is hanging naked on a cross, boo, you know, as well. So it's probably a little bit of both, but Luke doesn't exactly answer that question. All we know is the end of 19, right? So look at the end of 19. They are. eh, I just lost my place. Here we go.
1: 48.
0: They did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. The end of 21, we read in verse 37 and 38 every day he was teaching the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. And then in 22 is going to be Jesus with his disciples at the Passover, doing instituting the Lord's Supper. He's in the upper room. And then at the end of 22, he's arrested. And then next thing we see, there's a crowd that sells crucify, crucify in 23. And how we get from, everyone's hanging on this word, So Luke isn't going to tell us that, whether or not it's the exact same group of people, uh, how much overlap there is, how many people that are here in the temple hanging on his words are crying, crucify, crucify a few days later. How many of those people are different? I don't know. We could guess, uh, but we, we simply don't know, and I don't think Luke does much to show us how. So I think the important point is that the leadership of Israel what Luke's highlighted is at every level, whether it's the scribes, whether it's the Pharisees, whether it's the elders, whether it's the chief priests, whether it's the Sadducees or the leading men, all of Israel's leadership in in a homogeneous sense is opposed to Jesus. They represent the nation, and they certainly have enough of the people behind them that they genuinely represent Israel so that Peter can say to Jews at Pentecost, you put the Lord of glory to death. You crucified the Holy One of Israel and laid on them. They can't say, well, no, that wasn't us. That was our leaders. So that there's enough consent from the people that this is a genuine act of Israel's leaders representing Israel. And yet Luke wants us to see there's still masses of people hanging on his words. He doesn't unpack exactly how that unfolds. It's it's a good question. I mean, that's an obvious question. Anyone want to press any further with that or any thoughts on that? Steve. Steve wants to. I don't I don't want you to forget about the sheep aspect. The sheep aspect. They're flocked. Yeah. They, until they, they
2: lose their shepherd.
0: Yeah, the sheep's gonna lose their shepherd. And there's and, gonna and, be And no. and we
2: still act that way today, you know. Political wins.
0: Yeah. Well and as much as as much as these people are hanging in every, every words, look at back in nineteen, they are still expecting a geopolitical savior and a geopolitical salvation. So we're told that Jesus told them a parable as he was heading up from uh, from Jericho, precisely because verse eleven, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So they they are the one. Okay, so the Pharisees rejected Jesus' ethical teaching. They rejected his teaching about righteousness and was pleased by God. They did not like Jesus exposing their wickedness and hypocrisy, and they were after geopolitical power. The people seemed to be more willing to accept Jesus' ethical teaching, but they're still expecting a geopolitical savior. And so when Jesus is actually killed by Rome as opposed to destroying Rome, I would guess a lot of people, their hopes were crushed, they're disappointed. I guess he's not the Messiah. Because as Jesus triumphs over his foes, he's going to bring in the kingdom. They're expecting it to happen. There's this expectation it's going to happen, and there's going to be this revolt, and Rome is going to be cast off. And no, actually, he's tried, arraigned, and arrested, and he's beaten, and he's quiet, and he's not telling people, pick up your swords. He doesn't even fight. In fact, he tells Peter to put away his sword in the garden. So all of that, I think, is going to let a lot of air out of the sails of his supporters, and then a lot of them are going to feel disillusioned. And so I think that also accounts for some of it. Alex wants to add and, it as well.
2: Yeah, it, it seems like it is just people have really fickle hearts. <laughs> and because in Luke, it doesn't directly say this, but in Matthew, it talks about the chief priests stirred up the people to mm. ask for Barabbas instead of Jesus. Mm. And so they're able to be influenced, and especially when you see this person who you thought was going to be king up on trial, right? it's like, oh, yeah, well, maybe he's not our king. And then priests have a lot more sway over their hearts.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Now, Elsa.
3: Yeah. um, Looking at the um, Ezekiel 34 and leadership, the shepherds being more accountable, if you look at the church today, um, many of the churches pandering to the culture, especially where homosexuality is concerned and that God doesn't judge, he's just the loving God, we should Mm -hmm. accept each other, would, would that fall under the category of, of shepherds misleading the flock?
0: Absolutely. It, where I mean, it, I'll speak in broad terms because I can't judge people's hearts, but it sure does look like in a lot of churches there's a great desire to say to the culture, now that the culture's got these new axioms, like never judge anybody and be the authentic you and all that stuff. There's a lot of desire, I think, in a lot of churches to say, no, no, we believe that. We believe that, um, and to, to remove the offense of God's truth. And it's always going to be offensive. It's always going to be part of the Christian message that's appealing, and part of the Christian message that's going to be offensive. So, like Carson points out, the Western culture loves Jesus, turn the other cheek, forgive your neighbor, and they hate his sexual ethics. Well, you go over to the Muslim world, they, they love his sexual ethics, and they hate his destruction of the honor system, Right? How could you possibly let someone dishonor you and strike you a second time? So there's always aspects that will be in vogue and out of vogue. And like I said, I I had a chance to talk to one of the religion pressers at Simpson. And towards the end of the lunch we had, I just asked him, aren't you just a little suspicious when right about the exact same time that the culture discovers these new truths Christian theology gets put on its head, and, oh, oh hey, guess what? For the last 2,000 years, we got it all wrong, and we're right in step. Isn't that just a little suspicious? Like, really? And, you know, his only answer was, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> okay. Um, so, no, I, I think that's absolutely the case. I mean, and then, of course, you've got the people on the other side who want to be jerks, right? Like, you know, Westboro Baptist. And so, so part of it is being wise as serpents and harmless as doves. You know, it's not an excuse or a license to be jerks, but yeah, we should. I would expect that if the surrounding community knew what I believed, they'd hate me. I'd expect that. I, I think we. I think Jesus says we should expect that, or they'd hold us in low esteem, and and so yeah, we don't need to go out of our way to be jerks, but of course, the Canaanites aren't going to like it. Um, and so there are definitely churches that seem to want to... No, 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 it's, it's, it's really quite reasonable. I mean, even, I, I referenced the Andy Stanley thing from a couple of weeks ago, but his whole argument was that the apologetic burden of the church to defend the Old Testament and the God of genocide and the honor killings and everything is just too great of an apologetic burden, and unbelievers stumble over it, so stop defending it. Just, just unhitch from it. So in the name of evangelism abandon, he's not saying it's not the word of God, he's not saying it's not inspired, just stop trying to defend it, you know, and that is exactly the same thing, like, yeah.
3: Because I also think if you don't warn people about their sin, I mean, they will go to hell thinking, because not everybody's going to read the Bible in depth, and they, under the impression they're okay with, I mean, that's a terrible thing to do.
0: No, oh, no, absolutely. In fact, Al Mohler gave a really good message at this year's Together for the Gospel on exactly that topic—the importance of being clear, speaking clearly about righteousness and sin. He, he covers a chapter and a half in First Corinthians. He does six and half, you know, five and a half of six, and uh, it, it is excellent. And one of the points he makes is, as God spells out this list of sins, um, which include homosexuality, include adultery and drunkenness and fornication. It is an act of divine kindness and love for God to be this clear. It's loving of him to reveal to us. It's good of him to be clear and specify. Um, And we need to recognize that, therefore, it's loving and kind of us in the right context, right? doesn't mean you have to go put it on picket signs outside of a military funeral, but certainly when it's appropriate to speak the truth in love and not to be ashamed of it, absolutely. The other thing to watch out for is... um, Religion that likes wealth and money, you know? And you see, it's not hard to turn on TBN and see people sitting on golden thrones. I think they do. I haven't turned on TBN in a very long time. Um, and, and again, wealth is not the problem, right? It, it's, it's loving wealth, trusting in wealth. So just because a, a ministry has some money doesn't mean it's corrupt. Watch out, but where people make much of money, where people delight in their money, that's a real problem. Um, so, Paul, go, go to First Timothy. I didn't go there on the message, but Paul gives that warning in, in First Timothy, I think, 5? Maybe 6. Hold on. Um, what? 6? Six? 6. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> um, okay. Verse, start in verse, the end of verse 2. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a di- different doctrine, that does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. And then here it is, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. It's nothing new under the sun. You can make some money if you tell people what they want to hear. If you speak to the rich in years, you can make a lot of money. But godliness with contentment is great gain. And then you go a little further, and he does talk to the rich of this age. Um, verse 17, as for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty. So again, the the, the Danger is pride, and the danger is trusting in your money, not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who who provides us richly with everything to enjoy, there to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is eternal, truly life. So having money is not a problem. It's a temptation, it's a huge temptation, but you can be faithful having money and you can be rich in good works and be generous. Uh, it's wanting money and keeping money and craving money and trusting money is the problem. Um, so, But no, there's people who are, who are trying to make money out of religion then and there's people trying to do it now. And so the other, the other thing I think that's really interesting in this is that uh, Jesus does the ad hominem after he corrects their hermeneutic. What, what I mean is, he f- it'd be easy to argue, I mean, ad hominem when you argue with someone, is say, say Elsa and I are having a disagreement, and I say, well, Elsa's clearly wrong because she's a jerk. That's an ad hominem attack. I haven't actually refuted your point. I'm attacking your moral character with the implication that because there's moral corruption present, therefore they're wrong, right? Jesus doesn't do that. He first, before he makes any moral complaint, on the simple basis of interpretation, I love this, on the simple basis of the text and its interpretation, let me show you how they're wrong. They claim to be the interpreters of Scripture. They are not. And Israel's shepherds, rather than nourishing and strengthening this young sheep, they cast him out, as it were, into the wilds, are out of the community life, the good shepherd shows up on the scene, verse 35. When Jesus heard, they had cast him out. And what does he do? He goes and he finds him. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Now that is the completion of the blind man's spiritual sight. He now believes Jesus is divine. He's worshiping Jesus. And Jesus finishes that second miracle. Jesus ain't happy. Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now you say that we see your guilt remains. Now notice there's no break. He's still speaking. And it's in this context that he speaks of the good shepherd metaphor. He is, the contrast John sets up is, here's how the shepherds of Israel, they devour, they cast off, they, they don't... Seek the flock. And here's Jesus angry at them. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow. They will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of a stranger. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. Who's the them? It's the Pharisees at the end of chapter 9. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. The sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, just like these guys, afraid that Rome is going to get upset and come and take away their position. They cast off the sheep and they cast off Jesus. Verse 14 I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know my Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. By the way, I think that would include us. Jesus here is thinking of us. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There's a division, again, among the Jews, because he said these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why well, listen to him? But others said, and here's your pericope. Remember that, that not pericope, here's the, uh, the inclusio. Unless you know we're dealing with one unit. Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Yeah, this is the completion of that narrative. So I would argue that all of chapter 9 through 1021 is one literary unit, and we're to understand the first shepherd discourse as the completion of that, in which case the whole contrast is Israel's leaders fail utterly and demonstrate that they're the wicked shepherds of Ezekiel and Jesus by contrast is the good shepherd. Now that's a very long answer to your question Dave but I've said this is a passage I love.
2: So oh, yeah. anyway. Yeah, I, I the reason I think it's awesome is because it it's just not practiced very often and yeah. I I I think it's hard to, for a pastor to to want to go out and and look for someone that you know is is uh, so maybe trapped by different sins maybe maybe looks useless to his congregation or doesn't look right, talk right, smell right, or whatever. And, and this pastor goes after such, such a person. And, and yeah. I, I tell you, all, I've been around a lot of churches, and I've uh, met a lot of pastors, and I'm only talking about my experience, so my experience is limited. And I'm not saying there's not very many pastors like that, but I've never seen that example Except in one, um, one guy, and that's you.
0: You're trying to turn me into a scribe, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Dave. That, I'm going to talk amongst yourselves. I'm going anyway. <laughs> to. Thank, thank you, Dave. Thank and, you. and that's true. I, I, I mean that. So praise God. Thank you. Other questions or thoughts, Linda?
1: Okay, back to Ezekiel 34.
0: <laughs> Back to Sorry,
1: I've been just, just been running through my head yeah, since yeah. we went there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when he says that he's going to place over them David, okay? Yeah. So we know that David was physically a young man. He was a shepherd yeah. over sheep, okay? Yeah. But I guess I've never, until I really just read this again and again, thought of David as a pastor. Is that what he's... Well, it, it, by David,
0: I think he means the Davidite. I don't. I think the. I think he, this is Jesus we're talking about here. I, I think it's David as in the. I don't think the resurrected David in the resurrection is going to lead God's flock. I think no. this is saying because David's long dead. This is not the Babylonian captivity. This is 400 years after David died. So it's the Davidite. I believe that's how, that's my reading of this. Is it's the Davidite I'll set over him. David, the one who is epitomizing that. Um, no?
1: Well, because it says my servant David
0: so either and he ro- will
1: tend uh, them.
0: So either David will be raised from the dead and will tend the flock of Israel or a root from the stem of Jesse is going to come. That's the way I take it. Um, but Okay, because I, I, I'm I not mean so David
1: th- doesn't meet the qualifications of the list. That no, we
0: no he doesn't. <laughs> No, he doesn't.
1: So I just, I don't know, that was just...
0: And I, think, and I think based on the imagery of John 10, when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, I take that to mean I'm, Ezekiel 34, me. I, I think he's claiming that there. And so that, that John 10 confirms my reading, I think, of Ezekiel 34, that David is the Davidite, Jesus. Alex, you want to, oh, no.
2: Similar to Elijah, probably.
0: Exactly, similar to Elijah. Yeah, good, good observation, I like that. Six minutes, folks, six minutes. Someone else? Elsa.
3: Could I ask you something totally not to do with the sermon today? You just did. Yeah, okay. No, I haven't yet, but may I? Yes. Uh, Based on what Dr. Albert Moller said about the Southern Baptist Convention and what happened there, do you know?
0: I'm aware of some of it. I'm not aware enough of it that I'd feel comfortable talking about okay. it. I've read blogs. I haven't read primary documents. But there's a big shake-up and a lot of controversy in Southern Baptist denomination. I just don't know enough firsthand accounts to speak with any, with any uh, certainty. And I don't think God's put me in a place to judge them. I feel no compulsion to come to... I mean, so because I don't have enough facts and I don't see any particular reason to render a verdict, I'm going to defer But no, there's definitely a lot of stuff going on there. Mm -hmm. A lot of stuff going on there. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I'm I'm punting on that one. Punting. That's a sports thing, right? Punting. Or is it a boat thing? You punt. Okay. Okay. Sorry. Okay. All right. (laughs) Okay. Five minutes. Anybody else? Anybody else? Oh.
2: I was just going to say. I think it's interesting that. The scribes, the Pharisees, Sadducees, they knew the scriptures inside out, but yet couldn't rec- recognize with all the prophecies, yeah. with Christ coming, that they could not see that it was him fulfilling, right. which I th- obviously uh, gl- uh, God must have blinded them yeah. to it, but you think with all their background that they would see this coming. Right.
0: No, absolutely, absolutely. Once you get preconceptions, it is really hard to undo preconceptions. And they really, I mean, and we all do this. We like the threads of the Bible that make us, we cheer on. And so when they read about a coming Davidic king who's going to rule from sea to sea, and the nations better watch out, and they better homage him because he'll crush them with a rod of iron. You better believe those are favorite passages for the Jews under the thumb of Rome. And so they got those. And they didn't get, or they didn't certainly connect up the suffering servant passages, Isaiah 53, passages like that. So these conceptions that they had were so ironclad that when Jesus challenged them, a kingdom is not of this world. Um, A kingdom is like leaven that someone hid in a loaf, and and it spread, but it took a while to spread. It's like a tree that grew up. It's not going to appear suddenly. They just would have none of it. Combined with the fact that they... Felt a privilege. I mean, so in the the 400 years between um, between the close of the Old Testament, Malachi and the, John the Baptist, um, that's when the Roman captivity began. And the Jews, one of the things we see is after the Babylonian captivity, Israel is cured of polytheism and of Henotheism. They, they, there's no more. There's no more overt idolatry in Israel. There's no more worshiping of Asherah or Baal or anyone like that. They seem to be cured of that, and out of this climate comes this resurgence conservative reformation like of bringing the people back to the Torah. Look, God judged us because we didn 't obey his word we' got to obey the word now that 's and I highlight that because there 's some similarities, not that you know people who want to get the Bible back in schools are wrong, just be careful that 's how the Pharisees started, and so that is absolutely the danger we need to watch out for that 's the danger of what we could become as we call for for reformation in our culture, because it started good. You know, Judas Maccabee, I mean, the, the books of Maccabees are interesting history. They're not inspired, but a guy named Judas Maccabee led a revolt. And, and so they were coming to the point of patting themselves on the back. We've done a good job. We've been holding the fort. We, we almost, we averted the collapse. If it weren't for us, the nation would be running after idols. And by the time Jesus shows up, they're really expecting God to pat him on the back, say, good job, I'll take from here, here are your seats of honor, and I'm going to go kick out the Romans now. That's what they're expecting. And so when Jesus shows up, it's like a slap in the face when he calls them a brood of vipers, like whitewashed tombs. And <laughs> human pride is a very powerful thing. When you're expecting to be praised and someone comes along and, and does that, the natural reaction of just hit him, kill him, shut up, is what they do. But go to 1 Corinthians 2. There is a component of spiritual that you're saying as well. Whatever insights you and I have into Scripture um, come as a gift of God and his spirit. And so li- listen to 1 Corinthians, not Luke 2, 1 Corinthians 2. Um, there it is, Okay. So, um, verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For we know that a person's, who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Why? that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. If you understand the things freely given to you by God, it's because of the work of the Spirit. For we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, and interpreting spiritual truth to those who are spiritual. Negatively, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So yeah. Apart from the spirit, you're not gonna and, and, and the issue isn't that an unbeliever can't read a sentence in the Bible and make grammatical sense of it. What you can't do is embrace it, think it's true, and 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 receive it into your thinking in your mind. That that takes the spirit's work. So he's not saying that an unbeliever can't read the Genesis account and understand what Moses is saying. What they can't do is receive it as true, believe it, and, and embrace it. So the Pharisees and the religious leaders, apart from God's Spirit, cannot receive the testimony in the Scripture um, that, about who the Messiah is. So it's to remove human... And Jesus has said as much, right, earlier in Luke. Father, I praise you that you have... Yeah, we'll close on this note, Luke 10. Sort of coming full circle. This is the text, by the way, that set up our whole series on election and predestination. We came to this in Luke ten. Um, hold on, yeah, twenty one. He sends the disciples out. The seventy two return in that same hour. Verse twenty. When he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, "I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden." these things from the wise and understanding, and revealed them to children. Yes, Father, for such is your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by a Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Whose final and decisive work is identifying Jesus? God's. If someone knows Jesus and recognizes Jesus, it's because a work of revealing has been done by the Father or the Son. That's absolutely it. Which is why human boasting is removed. It's not that we're smarter, we figured it out, or those people are really dumb. How dumb of the Pharisees have to be? It's it's grace. It's grace. We'll close on that note. See you all next week. Have a happy Memorial Day weekend.